0: Turn to your Bibles to the book of Haggai, chapter number one, beginning with verse number two. The book of Haggai, chapter one, beginning with verse number two, let us listen to the words of the Lord. If you're there, say, I'm there. All right, thank God for three people. I said, if you're there, say, I'm there. I said, if you're there, say, I'm there. Maybe you're not there. It'll be behind me if you don't have a Bible. Verse number two, Haggai chapter number one, verse number two. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, saying, This people says, The temple has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, it is time for you and yourself to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lay in ruins. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways for you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not drink. You eat, but you do not have enough. Excuse me. You drink, but you, do, you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but you are not warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Why? says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house, while every one of you run to your own house. Therefore, the heavens above you will withhold the dew and the earth withhold its fruits. For I have called for a drought on the thing, on this land, the mountains, on the grain, the new wine and the oil, Whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and on the labor of your hands, I am preaching part two, part two. If you had not had a chance to listen to part one, you can go to the website and listen to part one, or you can go to the live stream on Facebook and listen to it. And this is part two of the stories of revival. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus the Lord. We thank you for this opportunity that we have together in your house today. We pray that your word would go forth in power, that your word would go forth in boldness, and that everything that is said and everything that is done would bring you the glory. We bind, rebuke, and bring to no effect every demonic force of the enemy. And we thank you that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And everyone said, Have you ever had a sense that something was missing? Have you ever had a sense that you felt empty inside? Have you ever felt like there is something more to life than what you're experiencing? It's like a yearning on the inside of you for something more. A hunger for something that is greater. It's almost as if there is an ache on the inside of you that craves to go higher and yet deeper at the same time. All of us, if you are a born-again Christian, would agree that there is at times in our life that we feel that feeling, that there is something Missing that there is a ache within our heart for more and for greater, for higher and for deeper. You see, I believe that that feeling on the inside of us was designed by God Himself. It's what I call a holy emptiness a holy emptiness. One person referred to it as, it's a God-shaped hole. Only God can fill it. C.S. Lewis said it like this, and I think he said it at best, and I quote, if I find in myself a desire in which no experience in this world could satisfy the most profitable explanation is that I was made for another world. Saint Augustine, the doctor of the church, wrote in his confessions, and I quote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. How many would raise your hands today and say I felt that way before? My heart is restless until it finds rest in you. You see, any time you find your satisfaction, any time you find your source of identity in your flesh or in your body, then you will feel dirty. Why? Because you came from dirt. And dirt can never satisfy you. Anytime you find your worth, your significance, your identity in the flesh, you will feel dirty because this flesh came from the dirt and it can never satisfy you. The tragedy, my friends, is this is that many people live their whole lives trying to satisfy that emptiness on the inside, trying to find significance, and it only leaves them more dissatisfied. It only leaves them more discontented. Some people will spend their whole lives running after things that never really satisfy them, and that they, they know within themselves that they're not satisfied, they know that within themselves they are discontented, and yet they continue to go after things that will never satisfy them, because when you find your identity, when you find your significance in the flesh, you will feel dirty because the flesh came from this the dirt, you will feel dirty. You can never feel that God-shaped hole with the flesh. You cannot feel that emptiness created by God, by your education, your marriage, your children, your accomplishments, and your trophies. It will never feel the deep ache on the inside of your heart. I'm glad today that there's hope. One preacher said it like this there is hope beyond the scope of human limitations. I believe that our hope is only in God, it is in a sense of revival, coming back to God, returning back to God, running after God. Some of us have the wrong perception about revival. Maybe you think revival is old school. Maybe you think revival is something that your parents did. Maybe you think revival is something that's old-fashioned, something that's traditional. All of us can testify that we've had experiences in revivals. Some of those revivals we have been changed, inspired, and renewed. Some of those revivals we have testified that we've seen too much flesh, and so much out of order. But you have to learn one thing. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And disuse never, never should put a stamp of approval on use. Just because you had bad experiences with something doesn't mean it's not significant. Doesn't mean that there's not truth to it. Anytime that there is fire, there's going to be smoke. you got to navigate through those issues. And you look at the Bible, you will find that revival is found in the pages of the Bible. It's found through the book of Genesis all the way to the the book of Revelation. It comes in many different shapes and sizes and forms and avenues. But in the pages of the scriptures, one page after another, you will see a people or a person who is longing to find satisfaction, longing to find approval, longing to find significance, And they take the wrong road, and it leads them down the wrong path. And when they come to the end of themselves, they cry out to God. And what does God do? God has mercy on them because they return to God. God restored them. God revived them. And because of that revival, it would affect a group of people. And sometimes in the Bible, it would even affect a nation. You see, a revival... Revival. It's a biblical word. It's found in the Hebrew, which means to restore. It means to bring back to life. It means to renew. It means to bring you back to your previous condition. How many would agree with Pastor Josh? That if there's ever been a time in history, and there's been dark times in history, there's been bleak times in history, but I believe that we're at the threshold of bleakness. We're at the threshold of craziness. We're at the threshold where people's hearts are failing them. It is a time for revival. It is a time for restoration. It is a time for renewal. I don't know about you, but my heart is yearning for a touch from the master. I said, my heart is yearning for a touch from the master. (laughs) Revival is simply this. Revival is when God's people return to God, and God returns to them, and everyone else sees the difference. That's revival. That's revival. Revival is a sense of renewed conviction of sin and and repentance, followed by the intense desire to live in obedience to God. It's giving up one's will in deep humility. One preacher said it like this, that throughout the pages of the Bible, revival was found only because of humility, hunger, and holiness. Think about it. As you look through the pages of the Bible, those three things occur over and over and over. When people were hungry, when people were humble, and when people got rid of their idols and walked in holiness, those three components started a revival. Hunger, holiness, and humility. You see... The Bible is full of people returning back to God. We need a revival, and it's it's nothing new. And you know why it's nothing new? Because we're humans. People are the same from generation to generation, from continent to continent. People are the same. We wrestle with the same problems. We wrestle with the same issues. Humanity is humanity. And oftentimes, my friends we don't even realize that there is a spiritual decline we don't even realize that there is a spiritual deterioration sometimes we get so wrapped up in our rituals even jude said this jude said in the book, his book he said you're not paying attention because you're so used to waving your offering a certain way he says that you forgot that there's a spot in the feast of your charity. You see, my friends, sometimes we get so busy working on our life, or excuse me, working in life, that we forget to work on our life. I think you understand what I'm saying. We're so busy working in life that we forget to work on our life. And sometimes spiritual deterioration and spiritual decline comes to a surprise. We're unaware of it because if you're not intentionally going forward, you will unintentionally go back over and over. My friends, the Lord rebuked the church because they were unaware of their spiritual decline. They were unaware of their spiritual decay. I know you're a Bible student and you've read the book of Revelation before. There were seven literal churches Some people think that those churches represent seven time periods. I'm not here to argue that. What I want you to see is that everything in the Bible was written for our instruction and for our learning. And we can learn from all of these churches. If you go to the book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you will see the Lord who walks among the candlesticks. It is the Lord himself that rebukes these churches. There's only one church that he commends. Six churches he rebukes. Is this a clue to us today that we've got to be careful that we don't go on the slippery slope of backsliding or the slippery slope of decaying or walking in spiritual uh, uh, apathy and lukewarmness? The church of Ephesus, you remember, Revelation chapter 2, the Lord rebuked the church for leaving its first love. Smyrta, he rebuked the members for tolerating apostate believers Pergamus he rebuked the church for holding on to the doctrine of Balaam Thyatira he rebuked them for tolerating false preaching Sardis he rebuked the church because they were devoid of spiritual life and power Philadelphia was the only church that he commend and he told that church to hold fast and be faithful The Laodicean church, he rebuked them for being prideful. They said they had need of nothing. They were wealthy, and he rebuked them. He said that you were really wretched, naked, and poor. In other words, the Lord says, you don't even realize that you're decaying. You don't even realize that you're slipping back. You are actually wretched, naked, and poor. And the Lord rebuked them. My friends, listen to the heart of this pastor today. I cannot help but to understand and sympathize with these churches because we are living in a generation, and I'm certainly not here to bring you bad news. The gospel is good news, and I'm a preacher who preaches good news. But if we're going to diagnose a problem, then you've got to be aware of the diagnosis you got to be aware of the issue. Sometimes I think as a church, we want to treat the symptom, but we haven't treated the root. We want to treat the symptom, but we haven't treated the root. We want to clean out the cobwebs, but we have forgot that there's a spider loose. And I'm telling you today that as you look at these churches, it's a sign to us that we've got to hold fast and be faithful. We've got to be careful that we're intentionally going forward, that we're yearning for God, we're craving for God, we're going in the right direction. You say, oh, pastor, it could never happen to me. My friends, listen to me. Listen to me. The Bible is filled of people who are strong in power and might, and yet the enemy took them out. Judas sat at the Lord's table. He was the first treasure of the church, and yet at the end, he is named in the history books of Christianity as an apostate. What about Solomon, who desired God so much that he said, Lord, I'm not asking you for wealth. I just want wisdom. And the Lord says, because you had didn't ask me for it, I'm going to give you wisdom. And yet in the end, his heart, in the end, his heart, was led astray because of foreign women. Oh, you know, I can have example after example after example. David, a man after God's own heart, handsome and talented, yet he had a struggle. Thank God there's an example of David. He wasn't perfect, but his heart was running after God. And I'm convinced that you can struggle as long as you struggle in the right direction. David was full of struggles, but he had a heart after God. He didn't have a heart for God. He had a heart after God, because sometimes our heart gets crazy. You got to go in the right direction. You see, even the prophet was concerned about the people of God. You remember the scripture in the book of Isaiah, chapter number 59 and verse 14? Do you remember that scripture the prophet Isaiah said concerning the people of God? He says, we're living in a day that justice has turned back and righteousness stands afar off and truth has fallen in the streets. My friends, I think you could agree with me that truth has fallen on the streets it's it's not only fallen on the streets it's fallen on cold hearts and dull ears we need a revival I expressed that to you last Sunday, went through the scriptures. But let me remind you, we need revival. We certainly do. I think the church needs revival. We, we really need people to return back to God. Can I hear an amen? We need people to return back to God. You say, well, preacher, I'm already back to God. But sometimes I believe we're not loving God perfectly. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It's possible to love him, but not love him completely. One preacher said, boy, we would have revival if all the sleepy folks would wake up, if all the lukewarm folks would fire up, If all the dishonest folk would confess up, if all the depressed folk would look up, if all the discouraged folk would cheer up, if all the gossipers would, if all the dry bones would shake up, and all the church members pray up, and all the thieves pay up, we would have a revival that would shake the gates of hell. (laughs) We would have a revival. I'm concerned today, church, that our beauty is found in our buildings. I'm concerned that our success is found in our finances, and our strength is found in our numbers. I'm concerned that we have more activity than we have agony. We have more construction on our church buildings than we have consecration in the church pews. That we have more diplomacy than dedication. Prayerlessness and coldness and a lack of concern and egotistical narcissist attitudes where we demand our rights over righteousness has infiltrated the church like a sewer system. We are more feeling-driven than we are mission-driven. We're more concerned about how we think it should be done than more about mission of the church. We have exalted trends over the truth. We don't cast devils out anymore. We counsel them out. Preeminence and prosperity and position seems to be the holy trinity of some churches. Some of us, and I'm preaching to myself, and I'm not, I'm preaching generally, and I'm saying this if we're not careful, we come to a position where we think we need to be a co star with Christ instead of a co laborer with Christ. A revival, a heart drenched. Revival that hungers for the presence of God. A revival where we love God with all of our heart, head, hands, and feet. A revival where we sense the manifest presence of God. A revival where we love one another. A revival where his mission becomes our mission. A revival where his burden becomes our burden. A revival where his heart becomes our heart. A revival where Republicans and Democrats can respect one another. Revival where we can lean across the aisles of the church and grab somebody by the hand of a different color and sing and worship together. A revival. A revival where the men and women of God are so under conviction of the Holy Ghost that they run to a place of conviction conviction and repentance and cry out to God for mercy on their soul. Revival where church members learn to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Last week I started a sermon series on revival. And today I want to continue that. I'm going to tell you a couple of things. I want to tell you, number one, the hindrance of revival. And then lastly, I'm going to tell you two stories in history about a significant revival in history. Number one, I want to tell you what the hindrance of revival is. I want, I read the text to you in the book of Haggai. And I want you to don't get bored with me because I believe that you are a scholar. You're here today because you love God, you love his people, and you love the word of God. And I want to remind you of the historical background of what's happening in the book of Haggai. You know, God's people, God's people, the Jewish people. You know, those people were kind of like us. They were in a cycle They would repent and come back to God and have a revival. And guess what? They would fall right back into sin. They would worship their idols. God got tired of it. And God said, I'm going to send these prophets to you, and they're going to warn you that you should stop this. He sent the prophet Jeremiah. The people got so angry with him, they threw him in prison. They didn't want to hear the word of God. And the prophet Jeremiah said, but there's coming a day, even though you're not listening to my words now, there's coming a day that the spirit is going to circumcise your heart and you're going to listen. They didn't listen then. And what did God do? He sent Babylon to them. And what did Babylon do? Babylon destroyed their city. And he, Babylon destroyed their temple. And Babylon took their wives and raped them took their children in slavery, demolished them. And you know what the people did when they were living in a strange land. They felt remorseful. They regretted what they did. They wanted to hear the voice of God. But God said, my judgment is this. You will stay there 70 years. Well, guess what? After 70 years, they came back home. Haggai... Fifteen years after they came home, fifteen years after they came home to Jerusalem, Haggai begins to write this book. And guess what, church? You would think after 70 years in bondage, you got the message. You would think after 70 years of being in Babylon, you would come home and do right kind of reminds you of the world today. We're in a pandemic. People are sick. People are confused. People are disheartened. There is going to be a slight increase in attendance after a while. After this pandemic increases, people are going to sense that Jesus is coming back. We need to get right with God. And things are going to go okay for a little bit. But I promise you it's going to go right back to where it was. Because that's people for you. And that is why we need a genuine revival where our heart is changed to the point that will never go back, ever. That our heart is so circumcised under the presence of Almighty God that there is a lasting change within us. Not emotionalism, but a change where we live out the word of God in obedience, in reverence, and fear, where there is holiness and hunger and humility. Haggai begins to write. Fifteen years after they come home, he's scratching his head. He says, listen, guys, I'm confused. You should be living right. Remember I just told you Babylon destroyed their temple. Now, you know in history... God's people, the center of their worship was a temple because that was a place where God's manifest presence would come down. Now, you know God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But there's a difference between God's manifest presence, God's Shekinah glory, God's heavy presence would come in the temple. It was important to them. It was the center of their life. And Haggai said this, Haggai chapter number one, verse two. You don't have to look at it in your Bible. It will be behind me on the screen. Look at this. The Lord says, this is after the people come back. The Lord of hosts says, the time has come. The time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Listen, church, they came back and they were supposed to build the temple of God. Now, why should they build the temple of God? Remember, God dwelt there. God's presence was there. That was the center of their life. And they never rebuilt it. Do you know what their excuse was? The time is not right. We don't have the time to rebuild the temple. We don't have the time to do all of this. In other words, do you know what they were actually saying? They were saying this. We don't want to put God first. God is not important right now. We don't have time to build the temple. We're busy. We've been gone for 70 years. We don't have time to build the temple. And the Lord says in the next book, Zechariah, he's dealing with the same issue. He's dealing with Zerubbabel, raising Zerubbabel up to help rebuild the temple. You know that famous scripture, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, that deals with the temple. In Zechariah, the Lord says to the same group of people, he says, the Lord has been very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return. Return. That's what revival is. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord. That's what revival is. Now, let me ask you a question today, just very, very briefly. How do you know you're returning to the Lord? These people did not rebuild the temple. They didn't put God first. They did not return to the Lord. How do you know that you're putting... How do you know you're returning to God? It's very simple, my friends. You know you're returning to God when you put him first. I'm going to say that again. You know you are returning to God when you put him first. Now let me ask you this question. How do you know when he isn't first? How do you know when he isn't first in your life? Guess what? Haggai tells them how they knew. Look at it. Verse number four. Look very closely at the wording here. Don't lose me. He says this. Is it time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lay in room? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider, think about your ways. You have so much and you bring little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but you're not warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put in a bag of holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. My question to you this, this morning, church, is how do you know when God isn't first? You know he's first when you put him first. These people did not put him first. They didn't have time for God. They didn't rebuild the temple. God wasn't first. How do you know when God isn't first? How do you know when he isn't first? Simply this, you are living a dissatisfied life. That's how you know he isn't first. You are living a dissatisfied life. Look what the narrative is saying here. He said, the Lord said, you have so much, but you're getting little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not... Drinking enough, you're clothing, but you're not warm, you're making money, but your money is falling through a pocket of holes. Don't you think that this narrative is sounding like somebody that is not satisfied? And when you are living a dissatisfied life, that is an indication that God is not number one in your life. God is saying this, you are drinking, but you're not drinking, you're not, you can't get drunk enough to get content. You're eating, but you can't get full enough to be content. You're making money, but it's going through a pocket of holes. And God is saying to these people, listen, you cannot have contentment without me. Hallelujah. You can make all the money. You can work 40 hours a week. But if you don't put God first, that money's going to slip right through your hands through a pocket of holes. Can I hear an amen? If you can drink all you want, but if you don't put him first, you're going to wake up in the morning with a hangover. And you're going to do the same thing week after week. Sex cannot fill you. Drinking cannot fill you. Entertainment cannot fill you. If you don 't put him first, you will live a dissatisfied life. The Lord is saying, "You want to be happy, but what about me? Am I happy you 're living in your panelled houses while my temple is laid in destruction. Some of us give more mission, more money to dog food than we give to missions. Some of us spend more money on entertainment and going to the movies than we give to the house of God. Some of us talk on the phone longer than we talk at the altar. And yet we want revival. It's like a stadium of 100,000 people clapping while 100 people do all the work. You know I love you. I'm actually preaching to the church up the street. I love you. And any time I'm preaching, guess what? Pastor Josh is right in the middle of it. Because if I ever needed a revival, I need it myself first. See what I'm saying? I'm in it with you. I want revival too. And sometimes I slack in my spiritual devotion. Sometimes I got to slap myself. But I'm your coach today, and i got to remind you, you've got to be intentional about this. i got to remind you, you got to keep pushing on. I want to be the Philadelphia church where the Lord commends us for our faithfulness. How do you know when he's not first, when you're living a dissatisfied life? Now, listen, I just want to say this. Now, I love the word of God, Pastor Engel. So as I was reading through this, I found something that I want to share with you if that's all right with you. How many would just give me a few moments and say, just take your time, Pastor? It's 1133 and the Methodists are still having church. Can I hear an amen? So we're all okay. Everybody raise your hand and say, we're good, we're good, we're good. Can I tell you, let me, let me say something else in the story. Returning to the Lord has to be demonstrated by what you do. Because what did the Lord say? He said in Haggai chapter number one, verse eight, he says this, he says, listen, I want you to go to the mountains and bring the wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it. In other words, I want to be happy. I want to be glorified, says the Lord. So how many would agree with me? Cutting wood is hard work. Come on. How many would raise your hand and say cutting wood is hard work? How many would agree with me that this is action? So the Lord is saying, if you want to return to me, you've got to do something. But I want you to see this phrase in the scripture. Go to the mountain and bring the wood. Stop. Everybody shout this on the count of three. Bring the wood. One, two, three. Bring the wood. Now, Remember, I just gave you a few indicators of what was going on in the story. The children of Israel was in bondage how many years? Where were they? Babylon. They were released, came home, and they didn't put God first. Now, this is the key. Ezra chapter number 3, verse 7. Get this. Persia gave the children of Israel the wood to make the temple. So when they got into the land, when they got to the land, when they went back home, they should have already had the wood. Now let me stop here. Don't lose me. Persia gave the wood to the Jewish people to rebuild the temple. So when they got home, After 70 years of exile, they should have had the wood to start the temple. But now the Lord is saying, in Haggai chapter 1 verse 8, I want you to go bring the wood. Now let me ask you a question. How, why do I need to climb the mountain and get the wood if I already have the wood? Do you know what they did with the wood? Do you know what they did with the wood? Let's just read it here. Verse number four Haggai 1 4. This is what they did with the wood. Is it time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses? They took the wood that was a gift from Persia and they didn't rebuild the temple. They took the wood and they put it in their own homes. Somebody better help me out right there. And I'm telling you that anytime you take the goodness of God and you put it in your home and you put it in your business and you put it in the things that you want done and you forget about the house of God, then God God says you know what I'm going to do I'm going to make sure I blow it from you oh, yeah. he says why are you using the wood that I gave you to build the temple and you put it in your own house and I want to know something church are you using the blessing of God on your own benefit or are you benefiting the kingdom of God Are you being the hands and feet of Jesus? They used it for their own glory. And you know what God says in Haggai chapter 1, verse 9? This is what God says. He says, If you're going to do that, He says, This is what I'm going to do. He says, Because my house lays in ruin, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to blow your stuff away. Go ahead, go ahead and make your money. I'm going to blow it away. Go ahead and work all I'm going to blow it away. Go ahead and build your houses. I'm going to blow it away. Go ahead and run and do this. And, I'm going to blow it away in the end if you don't put me first. I'm not talking about sinners. I'm talking about a group of people that was supposed to be named in the name of God who loved God. If you belong to God and name him as your father, if you don't put him first, he has a right to discipline you to the point where you put him first. How many still loves me this morning? I say, come on, how many still loves me this morning? How many knows I love you this morning? I'm telling you the truth. I love you. I'm telling you the truth. He says, I'm going to blow it away. The point is, revival is reprioritizing your life where God becomes first and you live a satisfied life in Him. Now, should there be a desire for God? Always yes. And sometimes when people get that desire, they don't know what to do with it. But God says, I want you to grow in the desire. Now, revival. Revival. Revival happens because there is hunger, because there is humility, because there's holiness. Hunger, humility, holiness. Hunger, humility, holiness. Hunger, humility, holiness. holiness. It was around April the 6th, August 6th, excuse me, August 6th, over 200 years ago, 1801, in the great state of Kentucky, known as the Cane Ridge Revival. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that revival before. This revival was over 200 years ago, and yet historians tell us that it was one of the greatest outpourings of the Spirit ever happened. It's a story that's unusual. It's a story where it happened spontaneously. A story that when you go back and look at it, it almost looks like, I don't know if I want to believe that. That's too far-fetched to believe something that would ever happen like that. Around 1801, August the 6th, I do believe if my history is correct, it lasted to August the 12th. The only reason that it ended was because they ran out of food. They couldn't accommodate all the people. So they had to disperse. The, The meeting started on a Friday night and it would go to a Sunday morning. Primarily... America was only 25 years old around that. It was a hard life for a lot of folks. A lot of people was pioneering. Hardship for jobs and homes. Universities and schools were turning a little bit liberal. Churches was not as close as it is today. We have them on every street corner, but back then you had to travel a long distance to get to church just to hear the word of God. So spiritual apathy and spiritual coldness swept through the colonies like a wet blanket. They didn't attend church like you and I did. It wasn't accessible. Preachers wasn't as many as they are now. Universities were springing up throughout America, and it was more of liberal thinking, humanism. America just heard the preaching of Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley. Oh, yes, that was a great revival of holiness, but that kind of simmered down a little bit as these colonies were being established. You know, you had Presbyterians, you had Baptists and Methodists. That that was the primary denominations in those colonies. A man by the name of Barton Stone was seeking the Lord. He saw the spiritual apathy of the day, and he as every year he did, would have a camp meeting. Now, they didn't call it a camp meeting. It was kind of like a a few days of coming together, and they would have communion, the Lord's Supper. Why? Because remember, there wasn't churches on every street corner. Communion was a special occasion. You had to travel a long way to get to church. And so Barton Stone said, I'm going to have a three-day meeting in Logan County, Kentucky. It's going to start on a Friday night, and it's going to go Saturday, and we're going to end the service on Sunday morning with communion. And he invited 18 Presbyterian pastors, a few Baptist pastors, a few Methodist pastors, circuit-rided preachers came from the distance in Kentucky, and they came with Barton Stone. James McGreedy was one of those pastors who agreed with Barton Stone that he would help him with the meeting. They came together, now, before they ever came, there was deep intercession and prayer. As a matter of fact, there was all-night prayer meetings before it ever happened. Years before those men were so consecrated to God, they were seeking God for a spiritual renewal. There was hunger and holiness and humility and practice. And when they called the meeting on Friday night, guess what happened? Barton Stone wrote in his journal, it was nothing special. It poured the rain down. Those few people that came to the meeting, he only expected a couple hundred, but it rained on Friday night. And of course, you know, Christians don't come to church when it rains. And so there was a few people that stayed in the church that night. He wrote in his journal, nothing spectacular happened. They stayed up all night, he did, and prayed. Saturday night, James McGready and the 18 Presbyterian pastors and a few Baptist and Methodist pastors got on stumps and started to preach. And the message was simple. Repent and believe the gospel. Those who came to Logan County, it was something new to them. Oh, they've heard it somewhat. But these, they said in their journal, these Presbyterian pastors preach with such fervency Those Methodist pastors acted like they were from another world, they said. They preached with fervency and passion. Oh, they even said they even broke a sweat. They were preaching. One lady in the crowd had two daughters. And as they were preaching repentance from their sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and escape eternal damnation, those two girls with their mother screamed out the bloody scream, Oh, it frightened the crowd that day. They looked around. They fell down to their knees. Those girls started to weep, and all the girls said was, have mercy, have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. The mother thought, I have never seen this before. I go to a Methodist church. This doesn't happen. She tried to fan the girls. Tried to console the girls, but they wept out, God have mercy, God have mercy. Oh, a few moments, few hours of them weeping uncontrollably, those two girls sprung up and started dancing with no music, started shouting. The mother almost had a heart attack. And just then, Barton Stone said on Sunday morning, Nothing really happened. We took communion. But just after those girls started shouting and dancing, it was as if a wind blew in the building and across the field. And I heard thousands upon thousands of people moaning and groaning for their sin, moaning and groaning for repentance of their sin. He said, as I looked out, I saw people shaking under the power of God. I saw people falling like hundreds under the power of God. He said, it was something new that I have never seen before. He said, I've heard loud voices and groanings. It started with just a couple hundred, but 25,000 people on horseback and buggy and wagons came to Logan County and the glory of God descended in Kentucky at Cane Ridge from August the 6th to the 12th and all kinds of manifestations happened and from that very revival multiple denominations were formed because a few men like James McGritty and Barton Stone would pray pray and pray and pray and pray and would not let go of God until God visited his people once again. Amen. Those 18 Presbyterian pastors left, few Baptists and Methodist pastors left, and their prayer was this. Lord, make it like you did at Cain Ridge. Lord, make it like you did at Cain Ridge. Oh, many people scoffed the revival. They didn't understand all the manifestations. Because anytime there's fire, there's smoke. That revival went down in the history of Christianity as one of the great transformative revivals in our lifetime. Holiness was the result of that revival. Humility was the result of that revival. And my prayer today is this. Lord, do it again like you did at Cain Ridge. Do it again like you did at Cain Ridge. A hundred years later, April 1906 I think it's April the 9th a little street called Ronnie Bay Bay Street few people had gathered to pray the story is interesting because from that very spot it moved there to a street called Azusa Street I'm not going to tell you all the story there's a video I'm going to end with the video can do a much better job than I can but from this very revival on April the 9th, 1906, I think it lasted to around 1915, a revival that had swept not only Los Angeles, but had swept the world. I went to Los Angeles a few years ago. I love history, so you know where I went. I went to Bronnie Bay's house, Brace house, where the revival started. Then I went from there, I went to the Azusa Street place. They tore down the house about six years ago. I was disappointed. The house was falling down. No denomination decided to buy it. So what they did, this, the, the city of Los Angeles put this sign, a marker. And I went up to the marker and I stood there. The big marker on the street and that busy street of Azusa. I stood there, looked up. And that big green and white sign, this marks the spot of the worldwide revival of Azusa Street of 1906. I ran in to the little shop that was there. It was a little place that was there, or by there, and I was talking to some people. And I said, do you know anything about this revival? Oh, there was a guy that was sweeping the floor. He was outside. He's like... I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, all kinds of thousands of people are always coming by this marker. He says, it's something special here. He says, from this very spot, the world was touched. I'm asking you. We're nobody special. I'm nobody special. We don't got the best... We don't got the best of the best. And I'm talking about equipment and things to, you know, material things. I got the best staff. I love them, but I'm talking about material things. I don't have all the money in the world. And as I read these stories, I find that if you have him, you have everything that you need. In my prairies today, Lord, do it again like you did at Cane Ridge. Do it again like you did at Azusa Street.